I neglected to mention how good it is to have Pastor Nathan back just because I talked to him every day during his sabbatical. He didn't get a sabbatical from me, but, but we didn't talk about church stuff, right, Pastor Nathan? Just more important things like hunting strategies, things of this nature. So we uh, did keep in contact while he was uh, doing various things the Lord had on his plate to grow in his ministry and to extend that ministry. So we're glad he is back with us. Uh, helping in all the aspects of ministry that he helps with. I want to draw your attention to chap, uh, chapter 9 of Isaiah. We are working at rapid speed through Isaiah. I'm kind of checking your faces on that to see if I'm right about that. We are at chapter 9, however. It's 66 chapters and uh, moving at, a, I think, uh, hopefully a reasonable pace. I prayerfully consider every week how much to cover. I have several guesstimates uh, an outline form of how it might look, but sometimes I'll come across a passage like last week and think that, you know, it's best to split this, and that's what I've done. But chapter 9, 1 through 7, the verses we'll look at today, really are part, really the end of a, a larger section in Isaiah. But the verses are so familiar, I wanted us to focus on them in the context of the whole study of Isaiah. You know, every year we read these verses during Advent, and we will again in just six weeks from now when we start Advent. Uh, we'll do that again. But since you are familiar with uh, the book of Isaiah now in maybe a fresh way because we've been spending time in it, you know the reason for Isaiah writing the book. Uh, you have a kingdom uh, that's divided, and the northern part of the kingdom is, is about to be taken over, invaded by the Assyrians. And so the sin of the northern kingdom uh, has caught up with itself, and now it's time for judgment to come upon them. They had presumed upon the name God's people, uh, as if their responsibility to obey God was not uh, to be enforced. Well, God warned them over and over again through different prophets, and now Isaiah is this prophet who speaks, well, the kingdom is still whole, at least technically, uh, but it's going to split finally when Assyria takes the north. So it's a dark time. It's a gloomy time. Even if you're in the southern kingdom of Judah, it's not like you're much better than the north. In fact, when the floods of the Assyrians come in, as chapter 8 describes their invasion, it'll trickle over into Judah a bit, and they're going to feel what it's like to come under that oppression. So it is a dark time for the nation. Their kings are failing. Uh, The people have failed in so many ways. Their alliances that they thought would save them have shown to be a farce. They're not working, and now they're in this place of discipline under the hand of God. For the north, they're going to be lost as an identifiable nation forever. And so it's a dark time. I mean, it's, it's gloomy for sure. So the gloom of anguish is a great way to describe the sense the people must have had, certainly the leadership. And Isaiah the prophet is called to speak the truth of God. There would be a faithful remnant who would receive that word and believe it would strengthen them through the time of oppression. But the larger sum of the people uh, had turned away from God, and this is God's call back through the prophet Isaiah. Now, as we come to the passage, I want to start with the last verse of chapter 8. I'll read that and then go into the passage that is before you on the outline, the first seven verses of chapter 9. I set it up this way because I want you to remember chapter 8. He is telling them about what is coming quickly. Within the year, a year and a half, the Assyrians would take over. It would take 20 years for them to completely assimilate the northern kingdoms, deport many residents away. But within a year of the time of chapter 8, this would start to happen. Then chapter 9, he speaks in a different tense as though 
he's talking about something that was immediate when it's really future. And you'll see what I mean as I begin to read in this prophecy of Isaiah, starting at verse 22 of chapter 8, just one verse, and then I'll go into the text before us. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord, we are studying a passage that is so dear to us, your people, who have seen you fulfill your promises to the uttermost. And we look forward to the final consummation of what these verses point to. Lord, we see also in this passage this, the darkness that has come because of sin. The darkness that comes because of rebellion. The darkness that exists among a people who do not know you. And Lord, darkness brings distress. It brings insecurity. As we read your word and consider its message, please shed your light. We need your light to understand. We know that no truth can be fully known and grasped apart from your grace to us in Christ as you send your spirit. Lord, please give us a new appreciation for what you have saved us from in Christ and make us to render our worship to our wonderful counselor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are two brothers in our church. Well, one brother, and one brother used to be in our church, so it's not the Andersons. I didn't mention that earlier, and Clint got accosted after the service about this story. It's a different set of brothers, Richard and David Schulz. David used to be a member of our church before he moved, and they would tell me some stories. Now, the Andersons have some good stories, too, I would just want to say, so you should ask them some. But this was one in particular, uh, it was related to Richard and David. When they were teenagers... Uh, they lived in an area that had caves, and I don't mean the kind of caves where you just walked in the front of the cave and kind of went in deep and found your way out. The kinds that you would go down into a hole, basically. It looked like a hole at the top, and you'd work your way down, and it would open up into like a room, but it would be 
totally dark because of the way the tunnel that you would go into would snake down. There just was no access for light. And a group of Richard and David's friends thought it would be a great idea. I think four total. They would go down into this cave, as they had done before in other caves, but they only had one light with them, just one flashlight. They thought that would be enough. And it would have been enough, except for the guy with the flashlight through one of the different snakes and turns, when it was already dark, dropped the flashlight, and it bounced off the sides, and they heard it smash at the bottom. That's a serious situation if you've ever been in a cave without a light. They knew their real answer would be to find the light to get their access because they were already at the base where the room was, and apparently there are other ways they could have gone on the way out as these caves work. So they decided the best possible way of escape would be to find the parts to that flashlight to get it working. And you know how those cheap plastic flashlights are. They're, they're not much that makes it work. Just the battery is connecting with, with a, a wire that goes to the bulb and a little cheap casing. They were somehow able, after some time, on their hands and knees feeling around, get enough of the pieces together to get enough light to make their way up and out of the cave. Darkness is a scary thing. There's few things more terrifying than being in a dark place, especially a dark place you're not that familiar with. Even if you're familiar with it, imagine yourself being lost, and I've found myself in this position before. It's dark. I think I know my way to a certain place. I'm just going to head out this way. I think I see a landmark. I see the shadow of it. You realize it's not what you think it is because things look different in the dark. Uh, They look bigger. Sometimes they look closer. You you can't always tell. And before you know it, you realize, you know, this, this isn't where I thought I was. And you start to do what? You panic. You're like, oh, maybe I'm in the wrong spot. And in the dark, there's dangers. There's things that you don't know. You can't navigate. You start to get afraid. The more afraid you get, the bad choices you make. And it becomes a panicking situation. And darkness is scary. It causes anxiety. It makes us feel lost. It makes us do things we would not do normally if we were rationally thinking. Because we're scared. Fear drives bad choices. Darkness is a way to describe lostness. Darkness is a way to describe numbness or an inability to make decisions with any kind of rationale or any kind of information that would guide. It's just guessing when you're moving in the dark. Darkness is a theme that is throughout Scripture to describe man apart from God's light shown to us ultimately in Christ. Now, before sin entered, we had the light. God created and made light. That's true physically, but it's also true about his presence He shed light on everything we needed. We had all the revealing or revelation we needed. But when sin entered, a dividing wall of separation goes up, and man's mind is darkened. And he can't see anymore except for God give him revelation, give him light so he can see. So darkness is descriptive of man apart from Christ. Darkness is true of all of us before we were in Christ. We can even function out of darkness as people who are believers when we don't seek the light of God's truth to guide and direct us. We could fall into the same thing someone with a truly darkened mind has. So darkness and light become a a key theme, a chief motif of the whole of the scripture. You see it over and over again. When we see darkness, we see lostness. When we see light, we see Christ and God's salvation. And this is the picture painted for us in Isaiah. This is the first time Isaiah will give us distinction about who the light will be. God's giving his light through Isaiah, and the light himself manifested in Jesus will come, and we get better clarification about who he is and why he is so necessary.
It says in verse 2 of the passage before us, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see the picture that he is starting to paint to a people who are in darkness. And he's going to give them light. Light in the form of revelation or a forecasting about the one who will come. He's so certain about it that he speaks in the present tense. That's something the prophets do. Maybe like me, when you're reading through Isaiah, you say, chapter 8, he's predicting that in the immediate future, in the time of Isaiah's child being born and learning to say mommy and daddy, in that time frame, Assyria is going to invade. And that's still future. And then all of a sudden you go to chapter 9 and he's talking about something that's here. That's prophetic, uh, a prophetic consciousness is what it's called. And this is when the prophet receives a revelation from God and they are so sure of it, they speak it as though it's true. And the reason they speak it is for that specific small remnant who are faithful, who trust God. He gives them that surety of what God will do so that they can stand up under the oppression that will come upon them. At the same time, he's forecasting something that will be clear when it happens, and it's in the future. This is how the prophets would speak to give empowerment to those who were truly faithful. It was to bring judgment upon those who weren't, and it was ultimately to glorify God by revealing something of God's character for all time. To us even now, 2,700 years later, reading this text. This passage correlates well with something that Paul says to the Colossians and says to us. Hear this as we begin looking at the text before us. In Colossians, Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul uses the light-darkness motif regularly, and he's speaking to us here who claim the name of Christ, that he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. I preface it this way because I want us to appreciate something about darkness. I trust that you are in the light. You're here because you know Christ and you want to worship him. Not everybody may be in the light who is here. Maybe you're still in darkness and you're inquiring. You want to know. But if you've been in the light for a while, you've had, you believe the revelation God has sent ultimately in Christ in his word, who reveals Jesus, it may be difficult for you or for me to remember what it's like to be in darkness. I think it gives us a better appreciation for people who are currently walking in the darkness why we should love them and reach out to them with the light of the gospel. Be patient with some of the things they may say or do. Realize, darkness produces irrational actions. We act out of self-preservation. We act to protect ourselves when we're in the dark. So a lot of what you hear around you in the culture wide, or maybe close to someone, someone you love closely who doesn't know the light, speaks out of the darkness, and it's difficult for you. You get impatient with it. I know I can't. But recognize darkness is powerful. Unless God sheds the light of Jesus upon them, they're not going to understand. And it's our job to shed that light, to show that light. Jesus is the one who came to dispel the darkness of the world and the darkness of your life and the lives of those who you love. Look at this first point that I'd like to draw from the text that reaches back into chapter 8. 
And it's alluded to in the first verses, even though the first verses start to speak of this wonderful light that will be shown. But I wanted to spend a few moments considering this darkness. Back in verse 22, we see the gloom of anguish that comes from this darkness. And then verse 1, it refers to it again, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So now he's speaking ahead of time to the time when there will be the light shown and there will be redemption and there will be relief from the darkness that will come. But there's darkness still. Verse 2 says, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So they're, they're in darkness. This is a, a heavy concept to imagine, walking in darkness. That means you're living in a state of, of no sight. Uh, you remember a passage that we read in chapter 8 where there was no dawn for those people. There was no morning, no sunrise was, gonna, was ever going to happen for them. And that's descriptive of people who are walking without the light of God shining upon them. Notice the verses that embody this remembrance about darkness. In verse 1, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He looks forward to the latter time that he has made glorious the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee it's speaking of here, the Jordan River leading up to it. But what about Zebulun and Naphtali? What's the point? Well, these are the two northernmost regions of Israel. They would have been the first tribes or areas to fall to the Assyrians. Or any attack that came from the north would hit these two places first. So they were the ones that had it the hardest. They were walking in darkness because of their uh, being astray from God and sin. They're under God's judgment. And then the Assyrians would come through Zebulun and Naphtali first. Darkness. Sin has brought darkness to our hearts and to our minds, to our lives and to our culture. I trust everyone here trusts in Christ, but I know it's probably not true. If it's not true, darkness has affected our minds. And it affects our minds in a way that we cannot understand truth, and then it affects our lives. Because we're living according to something. And then if it affects our lives like this, it then has a collection of lives to make up a culture, and you can understand why things are so heavy and dark in the whole. If people's minds are darkened and their hearts are darkened, their lives will manifest darkness, and then that will combine with others and will have a dark culture. And that's true for many places the world over. Sin has brought darkness to our minds, to our lives, and to our culture. This is the darkness that's referred to in the general way when we read the people who walked in darkness. But a light is shined. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, I referred to letter to the Colossians earlier. He writes to the Ephesians, again, using this motif. Listen to what he says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, Paul uses Gentile here to describe people who are not believers. So you haven't been exposed to the light or have ex- they have not experienced the transforming work of the light. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to their hardness of heart. So they've rejected the light, and so they continue in darkness. So their minds are dark. Their hearts are darkened. Paul says they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity, and so forth. So the result of not believing is a lack of light, and the lack of light affects all of our perception and our mind, and we interpret everything through darkness. And it really impacts the choices we make in the life we live. The word that is used twice by Isaiah in close association with darkness is gloom. Gloom of anguish. Gloom is that feeling of dread and even depression that comes from not really knowing where you are going. Uh, as we wander aimlessly or we wander and in, in we're lost, we get more and more panicked about our lostness. Maybe that's how your life feels. You just keep going because you want to keep going, but you don't know where you're going, how you're going to get there, what's going to happen. It, it gets scary. Uh, we keep going in order to feel like we're making process, progress, but in reality, we know it would be totally luck if something good would happen because we don't have any idea where we're going. So many people live like this, more than you can imagine. They look like they have a plan. They look like things are in order. But in reality, they're just moving thing to thing to keep themselves occupied because in the, in the end of the day, their minds are darkened and they don't know the truth of God's glorious purposes. They just know their own existence and they're in survival mode. It looks different for people. Uh, to, people are made up differently, but they're striving after something and they're really in darkness. Usually when we're in darkness, then we make bad choices, especially if our minds are affected in this way. And sinful choices uh, come from these bad choices, and they can lead to slavery and to more fear and more darkness. And fear without God's peace leads to anger and more sin. And the layers of darkness don't lift but only get darker, and the misery compounds. I'll often hear people say to me uh, when they describe their lives before coming to Christ, especially people who are older and come to Christ, and they'll talk about or they'll testify about some awful, destructive things they did that usually will shock somebody who's been a Christian a long time and hasn't experienced this. But they'll tell you with complete transparency. It's no trouble for them to tell them because that was their life, and they totally accepted that about their life. They enjoyed that about their life. At least they enjoyed, they thought they were enjoying the experience of it. They knew it was destroying them, but that's what they did, and other people did it. And they'll tell you with complete transparency. At the same time, they'll say, but now I see things totally different. I don't know why I thought like that before. They, they're confused about what their life was like before. Now, this confusion that comes when Jesus converts us and we see with the light now and we shine it upon that part of our life, we don't always know what to do next because we're so kind of enraptured with all that has gone on before and what might come. They'll say, I didn't know before. I didn't know what I know now. They're referring to the darkness of their hearts and minds before the light of Christ was shown upon them. Sin brings darkness to our hearts and our minds, but it also then brings it to our lives. That's why in Isaiah 9, verse 2, it describes the people as having walked in darkness. They, they walked in a darkness. Walked means a way of life. It means living in darkness. Uh, walking as a metaphor for life. It's as though you are walking down a path but you can't see. It's a picture of our lives apart from the light of Christ. And if you have your life in darkness, you are constantly confronted with decisions you have to make 
and it's hard to make good ones when you don't know what's good. And your life becomes darkened by this. You keep walking and inevitably go down wrong paths, go off the path, think you know where you are, but it turns out you are nowhere near where you thought you were. Sin brings darkness to our hearts, our minds, and to our lives, but it also then collectively, as we can understand, brings it to our culture. One of the things that's important for Christians to understand is that if this string of darkness is true in people's lives, it's going to impact the world that, in which we live. And we have to, yes, we should be knowing of how it's different from what God calls us to, but also you've got to recognize and have some patience for people who are in that darkness when they come up with the conclusions they come up with or they promote the life they promote. They just can't see out of the darkness. And so when you're in the dark, you will self-preserve. You will do what it takes to protect yourself. And so that's going to confront other people in their lives because you're more worried about your own life. And that's what darkness does. You scramble. With darkened hearts and minds, people search around for answers to life's many, many dilemmas. Darkness reveals the sinful human motive of self-preservation. I can give you so many examples, and you know them yourself, but I was just watching a clip that people sent around this last week where there was a presidential candidate who uh, professes faith in Christ and was arguing for a biblical position as it relates to abortion, this hot topic uh, issue of our day, of, of so many days. And these ladies who were on the panel all kind of accosted him as not understanding what it's like to be a woman and having this situation where you're, you're pregnant and, and you have all these uh, life ahead of you and so forth. And they were coming from a perspective of, what about the women, the woman involved with this? And this now alters her life completely. It changes her life completely. And, and they were mad at him for suggesting that it didn't matter because this is a life inside her and now things are different and there are two people to preserve and consider the best of both people. And you can't just do away with one as though... He was speaking from a position of enlightenment, from the light. She was speaking from a position of being darkened. It's easy to be mad at her, even hate somebody who says what she says, but recognize it's darkness that's speaking. This is where they're coming from. This is what our culture knows. So it's not that we shouldn't oppose that thinking, but we have to shed light on it, and the light is Christ. We could say this in so many generations. The people who walked in darkness... But what we want to say next is what the people in Isaiah's day heard wasn't realized for centuries to come, and it won't be fully consummated even for us yet until the future yet to come. It's that next part. Those people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. One of the great pictures of God's grace is embodied in this passage. If you notice the first verses in the speaking of Zebulun and Naphtali, this is the region of the tribes in Galilee. Galilee was the first place where the Assyrians came in and did away with, ultimately, the northern kingdom. Is it not a a bit of God's grace and irony that this would be the first place that God would send his light when Jesus came from Galilee? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They have... They rejoice before you it's with, a joy, with a joy at the harvest. So in other words, they've been waiting for a long time for the harvest to come, and now they rejoice because the place where darkness was, light will shine. As they're glad when they divide the spoils so the harvest had come, and they get together and they split up all the harvest. It's such a joyous time and occasion. 
in verse 4 predicts and pictures for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 4 embodies so much biblical revelation. It's amazing. In that verse, the first portion of it is referring to what the Israelites would have known as God's deliverance out of Egypt, the ultimate picture of rescuing a people. Uh, All of these terms are meant to draw our attention to this. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, all words used to conjure images of Egypt with the Israelites. But it won't be, uh, the light won't shine in the same exact way where he just removed a whole people out. It's going to be very pointed how he brings this light to bear on his people. In fact, that's the reference in the last part of verse 4 when it says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the difference will be, it'll be a great, great redemption and light showing, but it's going to be particular, just like in the day of Midian. And you remember what happened with the Midianites. That's where Gideon took 300 men to defeat thousands of Midianites. So it'll be very focused. It'll be just, it'll be very tactical how God brings to bear this light to shine. And what will happen when this light is shown? Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You have to have fires to burn. They didn't have furnaces and so forth in these days. And what will they use for fuel? They'll use something they won't need anymore. They won't need boots for war. They won't need war instruments anymore so we could burn them. Then verse 6. This is where we have the specific showing of the light that's so particular in Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah is writing this prophecy 730-plus years before Messiah comes, and he speaks as though it's upon them with prophetic consciousness and surety. For to us a child is born, the light comes. To us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, all these names, pay close attention as we go through them. All these names have specific comfort to give all of us, and especially those who first received this word, considering their situation, their leaders, those who they had followed, they themselves even. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forever and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will, of hosts will do this. So the answer to the darkness of all time is found in this one who was born. The darkness for your life, your particular issues, your dilemmas, your challenges is still the same. It's still the same light. It's this one who would come in Isaiah's time, and the one who has come, as we look at it in perspective, and the one who shall come ultimately to make all things right. It's the same answer, the same light that is shed upon the darkness that has come because of sin, that has always been, is still here for us. It's still true for us. It's still true for the land in which we live. In us, the people of God who know the light, should grow in that light, be reinforced in that light, and shed that light and see what God might do as he shines it into whatever darkness there is. Because darkness can never, ever defeat light. It just can't. Darkness always runs when light comes. You can't bring darkness to light. The darkness disappears. And that's what we have is the light who is described here in wonderful detail 
for a passage written so many years before he actually came. Verse 6 calls him something that's associated uh, with this phrase, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It will, rule will rest upon him. All the burdens of rule will rest upon him. He will take all the responsibilities. He will not say it's not my fault or someone else did it or I had no knowledge of or I can't remember this and I didn't think I did anything wrong. None of that will happen with him. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. In most governments, the supreme ruler, the king, the president, the prime minister, whoever it is, they'll have many advisors. They'll have wise people. They'll have cabinets that help advise them. You know, we've read those stories in the Bible where a king is about to make a choice He wants his choice to be made, so he goes and asks people he knows will say yes. Or he's really confused, and he sends for somebody to interpret a dream or tell him what's going to happen, and he has these advisors. This new king who would come in Isaiah's day and who has come from our perspective, he would not need any advisors. He would be a wonderful counselor. He would make amazing rules and governances and decisions, and everything he does will be perfectly ordered and weighted. He will need no wise man to call upon. He has all the wisdom necessary to guide us. He knows the way for us to go. This is the light that shines upon a darkness. We're never rationally tempted to think that Jesus might not know what he's doing. Completely trustworthy, the guiding light, the wonderful counselor. He would be the king that would come. He's called something else that is quite amazing. He is called Mighty God. This differentiates him from any other Israeli king. Now, there were other nations who would call their kings gods with a small g. We know this is true of Pharaoh's thought of himself. Later, the rulers of Rome would act as though they were deities and make people worship them. But these were made-up things. These were not true things. And the Israeli gods were never allowed to call themselves anything like this. You will have no other god before me, God says. So now, who could possibly claim to be mighty God but God himself? It won't be a king who needs to call upon God. He'll actually be God himself. When Thomas put his hand in Jesus' wounds, he was right to say it. My Lord and my God. Jesus can do anything. He is the mighty God. Unlike Ahaz or the weakened kings of the north, cutting deals with pagan nations, the enemies of God to try to exist, the mighty God will have no need to make treaties with any man. Jesus, the God-man, the mighty God-king, he's also called Everlasting Father. Now, Isaiah isn't using a technical designation for Jesus here the way that Paul might in the New Testament, where we read so clearly the eternal sonship of Jesus. Here it's talking about a a characteristic that Jesus exercises as the ruler, as the king. Remember what the Israelites are suffering under, at least at a figurehead level, are we kings. I mean, it's been since David since they had anybody that they were all very proud of. Yes, Solomon expanded his own territory, in the territory to some degree, but it was he who started them down a road of division and ultimately oppression. Here you have Jesus referred to as everlasting father. This is a a king who cares for the people, a king who has watch care over the people. 
you know, it was when I was a child, I remember my mother hiring a babysitter to watch my sister and I, and she went off, and I'll never forget, the babysitter kind of let us play, and next thing I know, she was out cold on the couch, asleep. My mom got back three hours later. I thought she was the best babysitter we had ever had when I came back to the house just before I knew mom was coming home. My mom was not happy. You don't pay a babysitter to watch children and have them sleep the whole time. There's a sense in which a father is not absentee. A good father is always caring, always watching over, always uh, part of whatever's happening in his children's lives. That's something utterly missing from the Israeli kings. They were only concerned with building their own territory, saving themselves, making a name for themselves. But Jesus, the king who will come, won't be like Ahaz. He'll be everlasting father, never absentee, always will be there, always watching, always giving the care that we need. And something else that he will bring that we could not have from anyone else, which will change the whole situation for us, is he will be the prince of peace. There are nothing but wars and more wars under these other kings. It'd be wars because of bad treaties made, wars because they got themselves in alliances they shouldn't have made, wars just because people are attacking them, whatever the case may be, Jesus will bring peace. Now, he brings it in a way that's different. It's not just by stopping military action. It's by bringing the peace that we all need, the peace that we don't have, which causes us to war against each other in many ways. It's peace with God. We utterly lack peace with God, so we are angry people. We are children of wrath before we are freed from this. But the Prince of Peace, when we are enemies, brings peace between us and God by the blood of his cross. By sacrificing himself, by violence having been done to him, he brings us peace, so he's the prince of this peace. The history of the world is replete with wars and violence. There has been no peace since the Garden of Eden before the fall. As soon as sin entered, Cain kills Abel, and it's been like that ever since. But Jesus brings peace. In Romans 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Since Jesus brings our war with God to an end, we have peace with God. Now we can have peace with each other. And I want to say this especially to the young people uh, in our church who you know that you're used to because the time you've been born, we've gone through a liturgy and order of service. And I said this to you before and I'll say it to you now because I think it's important and parents and older people can listen too because it's important for us to be able to explain to people why we do what we do. But we come to a point in the service where we have the passing of the peace. You know, it's a great time to fellowship with one another for sure and, you know, see friends as we shake hands and say, and say the words that are printed in the bulletin about passing peace. But don't misunderstand. It's not meant to be like a, a little break from the rest of the service. It's meant to be a celebration of the fact that we now are at peace with God so we can have real relationships with each other and we can be at peace with each other. We don't have to be war, at war with each other like people are in the world or people who are darkened. And I don't mean just a war with weapons. I mean just at odds with each other. We don't have to have that anymore. And so the passing of the peace is really a passing of the peace that Christ has purchased for us by his blood. So it's a big deal and you should go out of your way to pass peace with each other. And smile and celebrate that we can have this relationship with each other because of the Prince of Peace. That's why we pass his peace. You know, there's a peace that knowing this light of the world gives us, and it'll help you in your own life and all the things you undergo. It's, so, it's shown so much in the lives of the martyrs. I was reading not too long ago 
about the English reformers who suffered greatly under Mary, the Queen of Scots especially, known as Bloody Mary for a good reason. But there were four great English reformers who were martyred at the same time by being burned alive. John Bradford, uh, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, and Hugh Latimer. While they were being burned at the stake, it was with a peace that only the Prince of Peace could bring that Bradford turned to his brothers who were starting to burn and said, Be of good comfort, brothers, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. That's the Prince of Peace in what he brings us for real. There's one other designation that you'll notice in the text for the light who will come, Jesus, as we know. He is a king in the line of David. We should not overlook this because it gives special impact to the very last phrase of verse 7. He says in verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now that builds to the climax of the last phrase. But before we get there, Notice these themes, because they will repeat themselves in Isaiah. Justice and righteousness forevermore. But what I want you to see in particular and appreciate is this reference to this light who is coming, who has named all these wonderful titles. He will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, to a people who are watching the Assyrians come upon them, they might be tempted to think, wait a minute, God made a promise to us. We're his covenant people. Now, they're neglecting their responsibilities in the covenant, but it's true, God will uphold his portion. And he promised, back in the time, 300 years before this, in the time of Samuel ministering through David, to David, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So immediately Solomon begins this fulfillment for sure. But what comes next in what is known as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and your house, that's your progeny now, not just Solomon, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So now, in the days of of Judah, Israel in the north faltering, they're wondering about the covenant, and they hear of the one who will be the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. They hear of him, that he will be on the throne of David, and he'll be there forever. Now we have the joy of having seen our Savior come and fulfill every last prophecy. Now, not every last, there's still some that we know will come. Why do we know they'll come? Why do you have peace today? Why is your life changed because of the light shone upon it? When you go to hire somebody or you call upon somebody to do a job, you want to find somebody who's not just qualified, you want them to be passionate about it. You want them to be excited about why they do what they do. I want someone to be excited to teach, because if they're excited to teach, they'll usually do a good job. I want someone to be passionate about a task because that's what will drive them to do it. How do we be sure that God will bring these things to pass in their full and ultimate sense? Because we have seen what he has done in fulfilling all his promises. What drove God or what drove circumstances 
to turn out like they have so far. And that's the last phrase of verse 7 that should be our encouragement too. The zeal of the Lord, the passion of the Lord, the excitement of the Lord for this to happen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus came to dispel the darkness of the world in the darkness that you may have in your life. Have you let the darkness of your life envelop you? Has it just enveloped you? It's not like you let it, it just has. Have you forgotten the light of Jesus who is with you? Have you found the darkness of our times trying your faith? Do you have a sense of gloom? Isaiah's passage, his prophecy here in the whole of God's word, the fulfillment we see in Christ and we await ultimately, encourages us by his sure zeal and promise to do what he has promised to do. Jesus is our light and he will reign forever. The surety of his final consummation and righting of all wrongs should be so certain to us that it it encourages us today, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what is befalling us. That's the key phrase that qualifies the whole of this passage and all that God has chosen to do. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The light has shone upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with what you have worked in your history of redeeming people. And Lord, that history is not done. You just keep doing it. Lord, give us, your people, a consciousness about the light that you have shown, the light that you have given us to shine. Pray, God, that we would be faithful in this. Please empower us to show Christ to a world that is so desperately seeking and groping in the darkness. Lord, please bring enlightenment to them. I pray that you would make your church to be salt and light. Father, we concentrate on the salt probably more than we do the light sometimes. I ask that you would empower us to be sensitive and appreciative of what it is like to be in the dark so that we might be all the more adamant about showing people the light. Because we believe that you will save, that you save. You saved us so you can save anybody. Pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.